Hello and oh, hello and welcome to another episode of the People Planet Prosperity Podcast. Today we are joined by Joe Kalman of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Joe is a energy security analyst and energy security forum manager at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Prior to joining uh, CGAI, Joe held positions and focused on public affairs and energy analysis at Sustainable Development Technology Canada and Canadian Natural Resources Limited. Joe graduated from the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy with a master's degree in public policy in 2020. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Western Society and Culture from Concordia University in Montreal in 2019. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Miles. Happy to be on. So the first thing that I really like to ask most of our guests about is kind of about their whole career story that, you know, a big part of what YCR is about is career development. And I think that you have a really unique role. And given that you graduated relatively recently, I think that you could also provide some interesting guidance to kind of what the work environment is like in energy and natural resources nowadays. So would you be able to share with us a little bit about your career journey and how you started as an energy security analyst with CGAI and what your job entails and what your organization does? Okay, I'll try to give as best advice as I can give because, you know, I am still at the start of my career. Like you said, I just graduated in 2020. So, uh, you know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting ride. Uh, and uh, I'll see if I can give some advice, uh, but uh, you know, don't don't necessarily take me as a uh, as a pure example of success because I could easily crash and burn any moment here. So uh, just uh, just fair warning to the listeners. Now I took a very eclectic route to my current position. So um, you know, I was born and raised here in Calgary, so energy was always you know around me. My uh, my dad was a lawyer who, uh, you know, uh, dabbled here and there in oil and gas. So I had a fair amount of understanding of uh, of the issues involved from the beginning. Uh, but uh, when I went off to Montreal to the University of Concordia, I focused on Western society and culture, which is not exactly a typical uh beginner career opening move to get in the oil and gas sector. Uh, it was a excellent excellent program though uh and uh you know not not exactly an undergrad that uh, opens the door to uh all that many career prospects but it gave me a really decent firm understanding of the basis of western civilization and i think it kind of gave me a um a uh, more skin in the game where it comes to really understanding what we're fighting for here so i mean um you know i so i did not take uh, an international relations kind of uh, undergrad or the normal path that someone would take in order to get involved with a organization like the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Instead, it was more of a uh, great books program to understand really the basis of what we're talking about here when we talk about defending or not defending, but, you know, really fighting for Western uh, values. Uh, and then, of course, after that, uh, I had to uh, go into a master's program in order to have any sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, I suppose, uh, career prospects, because uh, I, I, there's not very, very many jobs that require a degree in Western society and culture in order to be hired. Uh, so I went to the uh, went back to my hometown, University of Calgary School of Public Policy. I had heard great things about the program, and uh, you know, I was I was happy to be on board. 
<clears throat> met many of the people who I now interact with regularly today. Uh, a lot of the academics at the University of Calgary, unsurprisingly, involved in analyzing and looking at uh, Canada's oil and gas and uh, energy industry more broadly. Uh, so uh, created many good contacts there, learned uh, a huge amount about uh, you know the the basis for Canada's uh, policy and uh, economy uh, on where it comes to energy. And of course, I, I focused more on the energy front when I got to my master's program. I wasn't sure if I would go into that before I entered my master's degree, but uh, very soon on, uh, early on there, I discovered I am very interested in this topic and it is a important industry here in Calgary. So I uh, stayed with that. I uh, got my internship right out of school with the Cana with Canadian Natural Resources Limited, and uh, you know, got more of the understanding of the basics of the industry itself and what it's dealing with. And then from there, I uh, moved on to Sustainable Development Technology Canada, which gave me a bit more of understanding of the way the federal government works as well, because that is a federally op owned and operated crown corporation. And then uh, from there, and also got more of an understanding of the sustainable energy ecosystem here in Canada, where it comes to the development of, uh, you know, uh, sustainable technology for uh, critical minerals, where it comes to, uh, you know, the interesting new technologies coming around for uh, managing electricity uh, supply and electricity demand. So lots of interesting work going on there in Canada. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I applied to the Canadian Global Affairs Institute uh, <clears throat> because a, a friend of mine had worked here previously and, uh, you know, he flagged that, uh, you know, there was an interesting role uh, popping up here as an energy security forum coordinator. So I joined up there uh, here at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and uh, steadily progressed here, uh, getting more responsibilities and uh, doing more interesting things. So very uh, eclectic career progression. I'm not sure what exact, uh, you know, recommendations I can provide for your listeners on how to uh, follow that. But uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, I suppose what I did is I just followed what interested me most. And, uh, you know, it's led me to an interesting path. No, and I, th I think that's great advice that, you know, that not everyone has the same career path and that it can take you on windy roads. But ultimately, you do things that are interesting, you find things that are interesting. Now, I, I'd say I'd say that if if I have one recommendation to your listeners, to to young people and students, is that you can never have too many friends. You can never uh, know too many people, and you know have too. You can never have too many connections. I suppose. Now it might be difficult to keep everybody straight in your head and remember everybody's names, but uh, you know, um, just being friendly and being open, and you know, constantly uh, talking with people. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, uh, kind of awkward uh, coffee networking stuff, but really like getting getting to a personal level with people will make people a lot more open to you. I guess that, that's one piece of advice that I can give. Solid advice. Now, I want to get down to a little bit of the substance of what you do here. So you talked a little about how you you have an academic background. You did your master in public policy and then you did your undergrad with, um, as you talked about, with Western society and culture. And I'm curious, do you see a gap currently in academia on discussions on energy security? 
And if the answer to that is yes, how would you explain this gap? And what do you think can be done to fill this gap? For sure, there's gaps. I mean, energy security isn't a isn't a topic of study in academia. It's it's a it's a niche topic in international relations, maybe, and uh, in issues like that. But all all academic fields that talk about energy in any way do touch on energy security, but they do talk about it in very different ways, and they have very different values and very different ideas about what really it means. And so I think this is kind of related to. Uh, the tendency of academia to get increasingly siloed and increasingly specific on their field and to produce work that, uh, you know, just is meant to uh, please the other people in their field. So I feel like, you know, removing those, like getting, getting people out of their field, getting people to do, you know, like cross-disciplinary work is absolutely crucial to forming a real understanding of energy security. So we have, you know, like... Uh, energy security touches topics of, you know, it touches topics of physics, chemistry, uh, it touches uh, economics, politics, international relations, all of these things are fully integrated with our understanding of energy security. Unfortunately, very few of these people really talk to each other and really, you know, get to understand each other's perspectives on energy security. And so that that makes it a very difficult uh, topic to really talk about because everyone's talking about really a different thing often. And uh, you can have major mistakes that come up when one person's, you know, like considering one type of energy security, another person should consider another type. So I think breaking down those barriers, getting more of these academics to make connections, make personal connections and talk about these things on a casual basis and then form work uh, based on that to, uh, you know, really improve our understanding of what this means. I think that would do a lot. Now, one question that I, I want to ask you, and I, I ask this question to a lot of different people, is how would you define energy security? Because I think it's a really interesting topic where it's kind of it's kind of those two words where we often hear it like a like a buzzword. But what would you what would your definition be, and how would you say it's similar to or different from conventional security? That when we think of security, we think of defending the country. Um, that what what would your thoughts on that be? Uh, I think, and I might be, I might be like, you know, uh, uh, running forward this a little bit because I think this will be a question in the future as well. You know, a, a question that you're going to ask me in in the coming few minutes as well is, uh, you know, originally energy security was this concept of, you know, the security of your sources of coal and oil, like coal first and then oil, and this specifically was considered within the United Kingdom. Uh, when they were considering how to keep their empire together when they needed to constantly be upgrading their ships, making their ships better, faster, more capable, and uh, having consistent supplies of coal and then oil was absolutely crucial. And so these supplies need to be spread out across the world and uh, from places that you can trust and you know consistent sources, all, all these sorts of things. And so that was the original idea of energy security, very much a naval concept because this was before we had airplanes and tanks and all this like mechanized warfare. First, it was ships. Uh, and so that's the very much like the uh, the traditional security, you know, like very much uh, defense and like sea lanes oriented idea of security. But uh, more modern concepts of energy security are uh, increasingly economic focused because uh, oil moved from being very much like a naval issue 
where it comes to you know Winston Churchill's Winston Churchill's decision to move the Royal uh, the uh, uh, Royal British Navy from coal to oil. So at first it was just ships, basically, to being an absolute crucial necessity for the economies of every country, pretty much every country on the planet. So it became a more all-encompassing concept of full-on economic security and keeping the global economy running because you, you need oil for uh, transporting goods everywhere across the world. You need oil for energy locally, uh, and uh, you need oil even now for petrochemicals and for you know plastics and things like that, which are the actual goods themselves. So uh, we've moved toward a more of a concept of energy security that uh, you know takes into account the impact on of, on households and on economies of oil insecurity. So uh, my definition of energy security is the provision of reliable and affordable energy through an economically and environmentally sustainable energy system. So that kind of breaks into two parts, which is the household part, the provision of reliable and affordable energy. So the end consumer needs to have uh, energy that you can, uh, you know, you, you turn on your lights and electricity comes through just like that, you know, like that's reliability. But then there's also the affordability so that when you turn on your lights, you're not going to get a bill for $10,000 at the end of the month. You know, you, you got to make sure that it's both reliable and affordable so that it enables people to have a high standard of living. So that, that that's basically the concept of energy is to uh, enable the high standard of living that we live in today. But then we have to make sure that this is done through an economically and environmentally sustainable energy system, right? So uh, economically sustainable, that means that you don't just have the government subsidizing everybody's energy consumption. You need to have this energy cheap uh, because it is produced cheaply. You can't just have a situation like in uh, in Argentina where uh, all the households are subsidized hugely for their energy consumption because that just shifts the entire burden of energy cost from the consumer to the government. And uh, if the government doesn't have you know extremely solid balance, uh, uh, balance sheet, then very quickly they can find themselves in very dire straits and that screws up the entire economy. Uh, and then of course, environmental sustainability. You can't just have an energy system that uh, ruins the environment and degrades quality of life down, uh, down the line. So uh, this is, this is um, you know, historically it's been a situation, this is, was a major impetus for the shift away from coal to natural gas, uh, especially in Asia where you have, uh, you know, coal plants often, uh, they produce all these uh, sort of like uh, um, uh, partially combusted particles that people breathe in and they get all sorts of sicknesses. Switching to natural gas, much cleaner burning, you don't have anywhere near the same sort of sicknesses and you still have reliable energy. But also, of course, the bigger issue of climate change, which is, you know, uh, covering the entire global energy system uh, if we continue to burn fossil fuels for the vast majority of our energy, uh, there's big questions about the sustainability where it comes to keeping, uh, you know, uh, global temperatures uh, within a reasonable range uh, and making sure that we don't have uh, severe weather impacts, uh, like, for example, you know, droughts, forest fires, hurricanes, all sorts of things, which uh, many people are attributing to climate change. So uh, long story short, uh, I think energy security is much more has become much more of a 
uh, economic security issue. Uh, and it's associated with all sorts of other security issues, including climate change and remaining very important to militaries, which burn a hell of a lot of fuel uh, to this day. Now, I want to go more in depth on one thing that you touched on, I think, quite a bit there, which is that, you know, in the past hundred years or so, to my understanding, and I think that you would probably agree with this based on what you just said, that energy security has primarily been defined by countries' ability to, to obtain supply, reliable supplies of fossil fuels, oil and gas, coal. Um, and this is a big question. Do you see this changing in the near future? And if so, how? I'd say that it, it has already changed. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing more, uh, well, over the last however many years, uh, I mean, electricity has al al always been a major component of energy security. Uh, now, we, we, it's, I think it's the, the changing of the definition of energy security, really, that, that rolled over here, where it turned from the traditional concepts of security, where it comes to, uh, you know, uh, making sure that you can defend your interests, you know, national interests through the use of naval and uh, mechanized warfare, all those sorts of things, to more economic security. So, uh, you know, the, the security of the supplies of electricity has always been a imp very important. And, uh, you know, th there's a very major reason why Canada, historically, uh, the federal government of Canada historically invested uh, enormous sums of money into uh, developing the enormous hydropower and nuclear power uh, capacities that we have today. It's because these, this is energy security, like, you know, hydropower, nuclear power, very important for Canada's energy security. Um, now, I'd say that natural gas, natural gas, solar, and wind power are kind of the, the new kids on the block where it comes to energy security. And uh, for global energy security, making sure that you have uh, abundant supplies of LNG specifically uh, has become a major component of global energy security. Um, this hasn't historically been the case. But after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen how important LNG really was to European energy security. LNG really saved Europe from having huge natural gas shortfalls after they were cut off from Russian natural gas. And uh, we've see, we see now how important natural gas is to Europe's energy security. Now, Europe is going to be trying to get off natural gas over the next 20 to 30 years. But I think it's going to be still very important for Europe and for the wider world for a long time to come. Uh, and then we're, you know, getting into solar and wind power, both of which are, you know, kind of similar to hydropower and nuclear power in that they are their own independent sources of energy. However, they have their own issues with intermittency, which is also an issue for energy security, because like I said, my definition is provision of reliable and affordable energy. While wind and solar are for sure affordable, I think they're among the cheapest forms of energy you can get anywhere, uh, the reliability is a big question. So uh, overall, yeah, energy security has changed significantly over the last little while, and it will continue to change uh, hugely over the next 50 to 100 years. Now, so I think what you touched on a lot of there is how the whole global geopolitical landscape is going to be changing for energy, you know, in the next decade to maybe 30 years, we'll say. How do you think Canada is prepared for these changes? Are we well prepared or 
how 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 can Canada really give influence here? Yeah, I think um, I think some of the changes that we can expect geopolitically. Uh, I think one of one of the big ones is the increasing ties between Russia, China, and Iran, uh, especially with their own geopolitical, you know, um, uh, goals. Now, th- this is all complicated because of all of these countries also have relations with uh, Iran's major competitors in its region, which is you know Israel and Saudi Arabia. Like, let's take for example, China and Saudi Arabia, and Russia and Saudi Arabia have, are on very good terms. However, at the same time, you know, Russia, China, and Saudi, Russia, China, and Iran, sorry, are um, all united in terms of opposing kind of the Western, uh, what we call the rules-based international order, and they want to create sort of a new international order that gives them more freedom to operate and uh, to pursue their own uh, narrow interests, and associated with this shift where China, Russia, and Iran are increasingly, um, you know, bellicose and challenging the current international order. Uh, something that I con- I'm concerned about is the alignment of OPEC Plus and BRICS. So, uh, it, for those who don't know, OPEC Plus is a um, uh, an alignment of the original OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is a uh, group of major uh, oil exporting countries, non-democratic countries for the most part, and uh, you know, led by, spearheaded by uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, and you know, those Gulf Coast, the Persian Gulf states. Uh, Iran, uh, of course, uh, is a historical member, but ever since the Iranian Revolution in 1979, it's been very on and off exactly what role Iran has played. Uh, BRICS, though, is a uh, a consortium of and a loose historically kind of a loose uh, consortium of some of the major emerging economies. Uh, I think it was given its name by a Goldman Sachs banker. I'm not sure if he anticipated how much of a political role it would play in the coming years. Uh, so BRICS has become increasingly formalized uh, and uh, kind of increasingly led by China. Uh, so basically, uh pursuing a alternative to the economic heft of the G7 and the G20, which are the economic groups that are kind of the Western rules-based international order economic groups, which are all, of course, headed by, essentially headed by the United States as the largest Western economy. Uh, But this alignment of OPEC plus and BRICS could connect uh, the major energy exporting countries with the major energy importing countries in kind of an alternative energy system. And so uh, now this this isn't a formal sort of alliance. It's just that the, the same countries that are in OPEC plus are increasingly joining BRICS. I think as of uh, January 1st of 2024, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, and several other major energy countries have joined the BRICS group. So I think we can expect more formalization of this. Another thing we should pay attention to is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the major non-Western diplomatic summit that China organizes. And so we need to pay attention to that. And within that, though, there's some complicating factors, though, which is the position of India, which is very much like a rising power and a rising economic force. Um, And uh, 
pursuing a highly independent uh, uh, foreign relations strategy. And India, of course, it has uh, very tense, strained relations with China, uh, especially because they have disputed borders in the Himalayas. So something to pay attention to there. And we need to pay attention to Canada's relationships with both India and China, as we're seeing more foreign interference by both countries in our domestic political and security situation. So how prepared is Canada for these changes? I'd say that we are not prepared. We have not conducted a real assessment of our foreign policy in, I, I want to say, around a decade or even more. Uh, we're, we haven't really adjusted to this new reality. We're, we're kind of still assuming that the Western rules-based international order is completely uh, standing up and doesn't, isn't showing any cracks. I think we need to uh, become a little less naive and really see the way the world is going. Uh, does this mean that we should realign ourselves away from the West? I don't think so. I think, I think we need to reaffirm ourselves as uh, part of the West and an important part of the West uh, and to uh, you know, try to stand up for this rules-based international order because I think it's very much in our interest for it to continue to exist and for us not to be, have to play by new rules made by Russia and China. Now, you talked about that new challenge that we're facing that historically we kind of grew up on that world, that, um, that rules-based international order. And now we're seeing challenges to that from countries that really want a more permissive international order. How do you see Canadian energy really being of geopolitical significance and being able to support that rules-based international order that we talked about? Um, I'd say that we, we already play a huge role in energy security globally. Like we, we should be we should be frank here. Uh Canada produces, I want to say, around five percent of the world's oil. And uh we are also a major exporter of technology and know-how around the world where it comes to extraction of oil and gas. And of course, we're also a huge exporter of technology and know-how where it comes to things like nuclear power, where it comes to development in universities of, you know, solar power, new solar power, wind power technologies, like things like quantum dot solar, very, very interesting technologies that I think could have a huge impact in the future, maybe about 10, 20 years out, but, you know, like really interesting things happening right now in, in our universities and in our small and medium enterprises. But of course, you know, our major impact right now is oil and gas. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we provide uh, the, the lion's share of the United States oil imports are from Canada. Uh, we have an enormous pipeline system that basically feeds the U.S. Midwest and increasingly the U.S. Gulf Coast uh, to uh, make sure that the United States maintains a secure source of supply. Uh, we can basically, the United States can basically treat Canadian oil supply as, you know, domestic production, uh, which means that, you know, like as Canadian production has come online, the United States has been able to significantly curtail its imports of uh crude oil from the Middle East, uh, from Russia, from all over the world, where which is definitely less secure in terms of, you know, local geopolitical issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've, alongside the shale revolution in the United States, Canada has basically allowed the United States to become a major oil exporter, which has dramatically improved the position of the United States as kind of the leader of the free world, the leader of the Western rules-based international order. Uh, another thing that we are 
looking forward to, that Canada can look forward to, is increasingly assisting our allies in Asia, our partners and allies in Asia, with uh, their own energy security. So when the Trans Mountain Pipeline comes online, hopefully this year, I mean, like there's there's some concerns that it could be delayed for two years, which would be very bad for, you know, our oil and gas industry, our oil industry. Um, but we also have the LNG Canada facility and some other uh, major LNG export facilities that uh, are anticipated to come online uh, next year and then in the next uh, decade. Uh, and all of these will allow Canada to operate in the kind of Pacific market and especially uh, helping out our uh, Japan, South Korea, perhaps India, Bangladesh, other places that uh, have their own energy security concerns and improve kind of the position of our allies who uh, need to be able to uh, stand up to China's uh, increasing strength in the region, but also improve our relations with countries that we can try to get onto our side of the Western rules-based international order. So it's it's kind of a long-term strategy to try to bolster allies and partners in Asia to make sure that we can uh, maintain uh, the current status quo. Now, one question that I want to ask you, the, the big policy that I think that young Canadians are, a lot of us are, are very concerned about right now is with the emissions cap framework, which was proposed in uh, late December. How do you see this as something that could impact global energy security? And what are your overall thoughts and impressions on the framework? I'd say the the framework, it's not as um, harsh as most people were, as many people were expecting. So I'd say that, uh, you know, like that's that's good news, at least. But I'd say that it does provide more uncertainty uh, to the concepts of more investment in uh, oil and gas production in Canada. And I think that more investment should be made in oil and gas production in Canada because, like I said, it allows us to maintain and expand our role as a secure source of energy to bolster our allies and partners, uh, mainly in North America and the Pacific. But I could see us, uh, we, we also do, in certain ways, play a role in on the Atlantic side, even though we don't have any pipelines going all the way to uh, to the Maritimes that could provide oil and natural gas to Europe, uh, we do significantly improve this the situation in the United States in the United States for both oil and natural gas, which allows the United States to provide an enormous amount of energy to Europe. So we we have done something here, uh, but it, it's just not a direct uh, something. Uh, but for the uh, for the oil and gas emissions cap framework, it does create a lot of uncertainty. It is it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to uh, have a whole new uh, cap and trade framework on top of our current carbon tax frameworks, uh, especially one that targets one industry uh, for especially high carbon taxes above others. I'd say they would make more sense to just take the original uh, carbon tax system, which is constitutionally, which has been determined to be constitutionally valid uh, within federal jurisdiction, and basically, you know, like say, okay, we're well, we're we're exceeding our emissions targets. We should 
uh, increase the overall economy-wide carbon price. But uh, evidently, that is politically unpopular, as we can see from the uh, from the move by the federal government to um, to uh, uh, put a temporary pause on carbon taxes for uh, heating oil in the Maritimes or across Canada, but specifically heating oil is used very extensively in the Maritimes. So uh, the political issue with raising the carbon tax across the board has made the federal government decide instead to uh, target the oil and gas sector in particular, I suppose, because there's a sense that, you know, this isn't a, uh, this isn't a politically sensitive, as politically of a sensitive target, which, and I, I'm not a very big fan of this sort of politicking around uh, around climate action, I'd say that it it, it degrades the uh, the constitutional and the ethical, the moral basis for climate action, and it actually uh, increases uncertainty in two major ways. First of all, it uh, is questionable whether the federal government has jurisdiction to do this. It's questionable whether the uh, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act gives the federal government the right to directly uh, regulate. Uh, the uh, oil and gas sector in uh, Canada, because traditionally that was a pr- provincial jurisdiction, and we could see you know major court challenges in uh, in the uh, brought up by the provinces, which could see you know it gets getting struck down, and then that creates a huge amount of uncertainty for investors deciding like okay what what carbon price can we assume in our models going forward, you know they're they're unsure about that, and another level of uncertainty is the question of who. Who is for who forms the next uh, federal government of Canada? It, will the next federal government of Canada keep this uh, keep this regulation? Because this is a regulation under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. This is not uh, new legislation. This is not legislation in the same way that the uh, Greenhouse Gas Pollution, Pollution Pricing Act is legislation. So you don't need you don't need a government that uh, has a majority. You don't need you know. You don't need very much time in Parliament in order to eliminate the oil and gas emissions cap. It's a regulation, so it can be an Oregon Council. First day in the office for a new government, you can get rid of it. Uh, so th- there's not much really protecting this concept from uh, political change. So overall, it, this causes a large amount of uncertainty for uh, energy companies that are looking to invest and looking to, you know, uh, looking for more certainty over what the situation is here in Canada. So, um, yeah, overall, I'm I'm not a huge fan of this concept. Uh, I'm I'm waiting to see more details on how it will be uh, rolled out. But overall, I think that it increases uncertainty, and this move should have instead been done through the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time here today, but it's been excellent to hear your thoughts and perspectives on, you know, these really important issues that are facing our next generation. So I wanted to see if just you have any final words or thoughts that you really think young Canadians should be hearing about energy, natural resources, and really all the topics that you talk about every day. And we talked about a little bit here. For sure. Um, I I think it's the the one thing that I want to talk to young Canadians about is and, and I, I consider myself a young Canadian as well. So I mean I, I think I can I think I have a little bit more uh, credibility here. Like I know that things are really hard right now, you know? Like there's 
there are major economic issues that young Canadians are facing that I feel like previous generations don't really uh, understand. Uh, there, you know, the the ridiculous cost of housing is uh, causing a huge amount of of uh, uncertainty and uh, you know lack of a concept of what the future could look like for a lot of young Canadians. Uh, we also have, you know, the inherent uncertainty of the job market, the fact that Canadians, young Canadians need to spend a longer and longer time in school and just basically compete enormously with each other in order to get the few jobs that are available at an entry level. Like that is, um, it's an enormous amount of stress that I think uh, if we sorted things out a little bit better, that wouldn't be necessary. And of course, you know, there's the climate change issue where, uh, you know, it, it. I know it feels like there's not any action being done on it. And it feels as though, you know, the future is uh, the entire idea of a livable future is under question. Um, I suppose what I what I'd like to tell Canadians is that even though it feels it can sometimes feel like there's not much hope for a future. Um, there's certainly a lot of hope. There's a lot of future to be had here. And uh, I, I feel that we front load a lot of the stress onto young Canadians. And, uh, you know, it, it does it does get better over time. Things do become more certain. And uh, overall, the world is the world is getting more complicated, but it's not completely going to hell in a handbasket. So uh, I just like to make sure that, uh, you know, on, on a mental health level, I feel like young Canadians are, are struggling. Uh, I suppose my, my message is uh, keep with it, you know, work hard, of course, but, uh, you know, don't, don't just completely shut down and lose hope here because, you know, the, the world has always been an interesting place and uh, there's always going to be a spot for uh, talented young Canadians here. Joe Calman, thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Miles.